way, my leadership style is like that of a storyteller, meaning that what I'm good at is saying, hey, it could be like this. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Corey Madden. And I'm Pierre Carlo Salenti. Our regular co-host, Rob Kramer, has laryngitis, so you won't be hearing his honey tones this time. I'm so sorry. And Rob and I were out of the country for much of December, so Pierre Carlo stepped in and put on his interviewer hat. Yes, my interviewer, Tiara. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and who was your guest? My guest was Caledonia Curry, whom some of our listeners may know by her street tag, Swoon. In fact, her studio is named Swoon Studio. She started making a name for herself in the late 90s while she was still a student at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. She and a team of friends, as as you'll hear in the interview, she's really good at building teams, um, started putting up her paper portraits and designs on walls throughout New York City. These are hard to describe, so be sure to check out her show notes, which include links to some of that art. Basically, she creates and lay out in her studio these intricate, large-scale cutout designs made of paper. And then, with a team, head out to the street and glue them to structures with wheat paste. So part of what's amazing about her particular street art is that it's designed to be ephemeral. It eventually disintegrates and leaves no mark. But she certainly made her mark in the art world and started getting noticed by galleries and museums the world over. Cut to 2014, just 14, 15 years later, when Caledonia became the first living street artist to have a solo exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. By now, the term street art doesn't fully cover the entirety of her work, which also includes performance and immersive art. To give just one example of her more recent art, she built and assembled a flotilla of seaworthy rafts made entirely of garbage and sailed the whole thing from Slovenia to Venice, picking up curiosities and scraps from locals along the way. (laughs) Who does that? Well, she does that. The other thing to know about her is that she is passionate about ensuring that her art is of service to a community. So for several years now, she's led three very different community projects in Haiti, New Orleans, and Braddock, Pennsylvania, and only recently founded a nonprofit, the Heliotrope Foundation, to function as the umbrella organization for these projects. And she also leads a full-time staff at her Brooklyn studio. So I started by asking her how and when she decided to step into the leadership roles she's created for herself. You know, I think it may have started all the way back in college, actually, even though um, the real work didn't get going for another 10 years. I have this memory of being in college and I had started doing street pasting and then all these low level, low hanging billboards started to go up all over my neighborhood. They were just covering the neighborhood and just blasting all this advertising at people. Um, and I was really interested in the dialogue around public space and whose space, whose spaces these are and who gets to talk and whether or not the community gets to talk back within the public space of the city. And, you know, I was in school, I was working with tons of painters. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to organize a bunch of people and we're going to go out in one day and we're going to cover all the billboards on this whole block in one day. And we're going to create this kind of big change. Um, And so I just started to go studio to studio and be like, hey, here's what I've been doing. Who wants to join me? And it was the first time I'd ever done something like that. I had been a fairly shy child, actually. Um, And so I never really thought of myself as somebody who could 
um, kind of inspired groups of people. Um, but then I came to New York, I was waitressing and that really broke me of my shyness. And then, and then with this work, I just started to go kind of person to person. And I realized, you know, after we did the thing and we covered the block and we created this huge change and it was this sort of euphoric project, um, in a bunch of ways for us who had, you know, just kind of first felt our kind of capacity. Um, I realized I was like, Oh, I can, uh, facilitate things that are much larger than myself. I can get people involved. We can do things bigger together. Um, and so I think that that kind of knowledge just was sort of born at that moment and, uh, kind of stayed with me. And then I found myself returning to it over and over again, over the next few years. And I found it a, a collective that we would do kind of street art interventions and, and street parties. And then, Eventually, uh, I founded this raft project where a bunch of friends and I were living together and traveling. Um, and then the nonprofit work started because um, I was living on a series of rafts with these friends of mine. And we were we were just making the impossible happen every single day. And I was like, OK, you know, here we are. We're making the absolute impossible happen every day. And we're doing it for joy and for outrageous creativity and all these things. But I was like, well, what if we did it? Um, to help when a community was in need? Like, what if we took the same skill set and we tried to be of service with it? And that's when Heliotrope started. One thing that's, it's amazing to think that you were once a shy child because <laughs> Very. what's coming across to me, what I'm hearing is an innate talent for you is your ability to gain followership. Where did that come from? Your, not only your chutzpah, but the fact that people are <laughs> eager and happy to follow you wherever you go. Well, you, you know, I, I think it's, um, I think it's certainly not all people, right? I mean, some people are horrified at me. They're like, "Oh, she's <laughs> talking about. I wish she would shut up, and you know, she's too naive, and she wants to be positive all the time. This, that, blah, blah, blah." You know, certainly, I drive a, a, a quite a lot of people crazy. I think <laughs> with that. So, I think it's like with anything, it, you find your people. You find the people that that vibe with you and that are like, "Oh, yeah, that's totally what I've been wanting to do." I was already thinking about that. I was waiting for somebody to say it. You know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wonder the whole sort of transition between shyness and leadership. For me, certainly it was a surprise. It was a big surprise because I was really quite cripplingly shy as a child. Um, although looking back at it now, you know, I think actually some of my crippling shyness was, um, was actually disassociation because I was living in such an unstable uh, and chaotic childhood environment that I was mm. pretty checked out. Um, and so I think some of my shyness may have actually been like a deep kind of coping strategy. And and when uh, my life stabilized, I was able to blossom into maybe who I had always been. Maybe that, maybe that kind of bubbly, uh, you know, connected person was always there, uh, just wasn't available to me when my life was so unstable. The um, I uh, from the little I've read about your your uh, your rafts, it seems like uh, talking about leadership, you were actually captain of like a flotilla on <laughs> on two continents, right? And you crossed the sea, didn't you? Cross the Adriatic Sea? Yeah, we we skirted the coast. We went into the Adriatic. We didn't go straight across, but yeah, we took our oh. vessels into the Adriatic. Yeah, um, I I should make one small correction. So yes. I was kind of team captain in the large sense yeah. of being like, hey, let's do this. And here's the designs and here's how this is going to work. And let's raise the money and do the thing. Um, but I didn't actually captain the rafts. And the reason that I didn't captain the rafts, I tried it uh, for a little while. 
But what I found is that my leadership style is that I love to get together with a group of people and, and, you know, make something that feels exciting and that feels fun and wonderful. What I don't love to do is make quick decisions when a barge is coming at you and your motorcycle. (laughs) And so I actually tried to captain the rafts and I, I did it for like two hours and our, you know, we were going down the Mississippi river, our motors broke down. We were in front of an oncoming barge and I froze like a deer in headlights And my, the person who was trying to train me and captaining took over and made all the decisions, did the thing. And I just knew right then I was like, I should not be in charge of people's lives. This is not me. (laughs) And so that was one of those moments of stepping out of a leadership position. That's just not yours. And just sort of being able to see clearly like, nope, this is not, this is not my role. Right. That's amazing. Well, like, yeah, it is important to realize what you can and can't do as a leader, what your skills totally. are. You know, and there were so, other people who were amazing yeah. at leading in that way. There were tons of people who were leading in small and large ways within the RAF projects or within any of the community-based projects. So how would you describe your leadership? We talked about what you're not good at, which is moving moving a, a raft out of a barge's <laughs> way in this second what do you think when you're working because it sounds like you'd love to work collaboratively Mm -hmm. um how would you describe your great your leadership skills and also what do you think in your artistic background uh kind of helped you hone those skills Hmm. you know i'm not sure but i guess i would have to say Strangely, no one's ever asked me to define my leadership style. So this is actually an interesting question for me. Um, I think that in a way, my leadership style is like that of a storyteller, meaning that what I'm good at is saying, hey, it could be like this. Like, what if we did this? Like, that's really that's really where my strength lies. Um, you know, seeing something and then and then involving people in such a way that they're able to see it too. And then also involving people in such a way that they're able to bring them their best selves and that they're able to um, bring things I never would have thought of and that they're able to, you know, let the project blossom in ways that uh, if I were dreaming it up alone, just wouldn't happen. Um, And so it's, you know, I think it's, kind of exists in those two ways, kind of first as like a storyteller and then second as somebody who's really uh, interested in the strengths that other people are bringing. Later, I asked her to describe a moment when she felt she and her team were on fire, when she felt she was excelling as a leader. Well, gosh, you know, when when that just happened recently was... um, uh, so I had this exhibition and uh, it's the exhibition of my stop motion work. And we, you know, we're going to have the opening night and I really wanted the opening night to feel special in some way. And so I had been working with, um, you know, live actors in some of the stop motion and painting them and, and kind of doing these uh, elements. And so we brought together a whole group of people, but we only had three hours to uh, build costumes, design the performance, rehearse the performance. That was it. We had to, we had to develop the whole thing wow. you know, from soup to nuts in three hours. So and we came in and I was like, okay, everyone, here's piles of stuff. You start on your costumes and I'm going to run around and, and, you know, kind of give input, say yes, no, give ideas, uh, help out. Um, 
And so we did that. And then, okay, hour and a half. Okay, everyone, let's do the performance. So then I'm like, well, I'm actually uh, a visual artist. And why I'm not, I don't really lead performances. So I was like, hey, some of you guys are dancers. Can you guys start? And then I will we'll sort of feed back and forth. And so we did that for a little bit. And then I kind of was like, okay, that idea is totally working, you know, because I was standing outside watching. This idea is working. Let's go with this. Let's go with this. And then boom, boom, we got the whole thing designed. And I was like, holy shit, I cannot believe how well this is working. And I realized that what was going on was that we had an amazing team already. Every person who was involved already had quite a lot of their own artistic vision that they were able to bring. And because it was within this container of my show, they were also really quite willing to let me kind of creative direct. So it was like this kind of really beautiful thing where people were both willing to um, show up creatively and willing to take direction creatively. And uh, so I was just like, wow, I th- this really worked. And it felt like it was a factor of having built community over a long time because these were all folks I'd known for years in different capacities and, you know, just kind of like slowly building uh, a great creative community and then knowing that it can be activated at a moment's notice. Wow. So tell me about leading outside of your community, for instance, in Haiti, in Pennsylvania, in New Orleans, where you haven't yet built built up your community and sometimes you're working across cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the... um you know, the main thing I would say as like a point of success, you know, because of course there are points of success and failure in, in all of those projects. Um, but a point of success has been to nest, uh, my work and myself within a, a local structure of leadership. Um, because the thing is that in those situations in Haiti, uh, for example, which has been a very successful project, um, you know, it was absolutely clear without question that I was an outsider and that my team were out, we were outsiders. And so what we did was we uh, looked for a kind of a small, uh, very self-driven, very positive community organization that could be our partner and that we could take leadership from them and bring ideas to them and kind of work within uh, the framework that they had built. Um, And that's so important on just like all kinds of levels. Um, You know, mainly being these are the folks that know what their community needs. That's already a group of folks that have built trust uh, amongst themselves and with each other. And so, um, you know, it becomes much easier to, kind of form that bond of trust between these two groups that already have a good thing going within themselves. Um, And it also makes it possible to do something that's right for a community because, you know, we're bringing our own ideas, we're bringing our own input, our own resources, but uh, that can't just land on nothing. You know, it's like, that's the, people always talk about the hot air balloon method where you just sort of parachute in or whatever. And, uh, and I think that, you know, you can come in from the outside and that can be a really positive thing. And one of the ways I've seen that be a positive thing is that when you land within local leadership. I see. Tell me about some of the points of success in, in those community uh, projects of yours, the couple, couple that you're incredibly proud of. Yeah. Well, in Haiti, I'm incredibly proud of that project. Um, in a bunch of ways, including that we were able to build um, 
three homes in one community center and build these really long-term relationships with this community over 10 years. Um, mm. And we were also able to do that. One of our really big successes early on is that we were able to be building at a time when almost no other um, facilitated building projects were happening because wow. all these other groups had their materials caught in customs. They were dealing with large-scale bureaucracy. And we were four artists who connected with a small group of people who had its own local leadership. And it was just like, and we made this decision to work with only locally sourced materials. So we found a factory, we got them to sell us the raw material rather than the in parts, you know, we kind of did all this groundwork, which meant that we weren't getting caught in any of the hangups that people were getting caught at when they were uh, sort of more large scale and less flexible than we are. So it really felt like we had found this kind of magic sweet spot that was about a small group of people connecting to another small group of people um, and working with what was available locally and that we were able to make things happen. And I was really proud of that. Hmm, sounds amazing. What about uh, if you wouldn't mind a, a point of failure yeah. in, in any so of these projects. Uh a point of failure, a big one, and actually, I just uh, I just gave a talk about this one, which was pretty hard. But now that I talked about it, I can I can start to share about it more. Um, but so I started a project also a little over ten years ago in a town called Braddock, Pennsylvania, and uh, I kind of took over. I purchased and took over stewardship of this church, um, huge building, huge project. And I worked with various collaborators to take on like bits of the of the um, you know to repairing this church, and uh, you know each of the steps of the of the repair we tried to do in this kind of very deeply community based way where we'd involve people, provide jobs, provide like learning experiences. Um, you know, and we had a lot of small successes within that. But over time, what I found was that there was a certain strain that kept cropping up over and over again that resulted in me not living there full time. Um, and that I wasn't somehow in certain places I've been able to really click and not live somewhere full time where the where the, the group that I'm working with is just like there's such a, an electricity and such amount of goodwill that we're able to just get things done, even with me as a, as a kind of an outside agent. But, um, but with the group that I was working with in Braddock, it just felt like these same forms of stress kept reappearing. And, uh, and also the expense of the project, I think was, was maybe actually the single biggest factor that started to feel, you know, we threw a Kickstarter and we raised like, you know, I mean, a tremendous amount of money, almost a hundred thousand dollars, which feels like a tremendous amount of money and okay. is, but when you're trying to do, when you're trying to fix a church with, you know, labor standards and all of the, you know, the insurance and all of these things, it ended up to be uh, a very tiny amount of money. And we ended up investing it more in the community and less in the structure. So we were able to do work that we were really proud of starting this ceramics factory and doing all this stuff. But, um, but we weren't able to repair the building. And it was one of those things where it felt like we had raised all this money, but it really didn't get that far. And I think anyone who's taken on a legitimately scaled construction project knows that that's, uh, this, that's actually not that, that much and that you right. really need to get serious investment and you need to, to get all these things that I, um, you know, and then I, I went through a bunch of life events that were quite difficult. There was a lot of death in my family and I needed to, I needed to really go inward and do a lot of healing myself. And I just found that I wasn't able to do that work that it was going to take to, um, to get the investors, to get the capital, to, to make the church happen. Um, and so I've, I've realized that I need to actually pass it on. Um, and that was a very hard decision. Um, hmm. 
you know, because you, you want to do what you said you were going to do. You want to lift, you want to lift the load that you said you'd carry, uh, and, and saying, you know, finding that you can't do it is, uh, you know, can feel really defeating and can feel, uh, like, oh, of course, you know, you came into this community and you said you were going to do all this stuff and you're leaving just like everyone else. This is the voice in the back of my head. Um, and so the challenge that's before me right now is how to transition that structure in a way that's really beneficial for the community and hopefully more beneficial. I ended the interview by asking her what advice she'd give her younger artist self about the kind of artist and leader she would eventually become. I mean, honestly, I think I would say to teach myself about forgiveness earlier. Um, you know, I really have... Uh, through through uh, my family because I have a, a fa- you know a difficult family like us like we all do um, uh, I've had to really learn a lot about forgiveness and about compassion and self compassion um, and I think that I would try to teach myself I would say hey you know uh, actively learn about this it's not you know, having compassion and having forgiveness is a practice. It's not, uh, it can be a disposition, but it's also work. It's also work to understand other people's point of view. It's, it's work to, um, you know, get yourself into a place of being kind to yourself. Um, and so I think I would just try to get myself to do a lot of that stuff earlier, take care of myself and, uh, and take, take things less personally. And lastly, um, what do you think it would take? Because you went, you you trained at Pratt, right? And then, of course, taught yourself. Uh, but what do you think it would take for more artists to feel like they could step up and lead in the world? You know, I think that there's something which is happening right now, which is really positive for artists to step up and lead. And that's, uh, having creativity taken seriously, you know, in the, in the, in the environment that I grew up as a kid, um, we did have art classes and we did have, um, you know, there was some kind of respect for creativity. Um, but I really think that that has grown. I think that in the last decade, you know, even just with folks like you asking questions like this, and obviously you're coming from a background of having respect for creativity, but I've seen it happen um, in many other places where people are kind of waking up to the knowledge that creative problem solving can really uh, be effective in all areas of life. And that that and that the kind of like deeply irrational creative brain can make connections that can't otherwise be made. And I really think that people are becoming aware of that. And so I think that as we become aware of that and kind of deepen our respect for that process, that more and more artists will feel um, that that it's valid for them to kind of go with those gut feelings and like use their kind of wilder, more creative intuitions to make decisions that are impacting all other parts of their lives and other people's lives. Corey, I am so interested in getting your take on what you think is remarkable about her leadership strategy. I'll I'll tell you what struck me right away was her joy. She just radiates joy which I'm guessing makes it easier, of course, for her to attract teammates. Joy and optimism, that, of course, we can do this spirit, like Mickey and Judy putting on a show in the barn. You know, It's intoxicating, especially when 
someone's vision is clear to get that kind of followership. And, and that ties in with, with what I think is her other great strength, which is uh, her ability to tell the story of her projects, to explain them vividly to her team so they know exactly what they're signing on to. And in fact, she's she, her art lately has become more narrative. She's finally really embracing her storytelling talents. And so if you read the longer version of the interview on our website, she, you'll find out she's making, the, she's making these semi-narrative stop-motion animations that really embrace her storytelling skills, which I think make her a great leader. Yes, it was just a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for bringing us this interview, Pierre Carlo. You're welcome. You know, I, I was really struck in the conversation about how she navigates not only her strengths as a leader, but also her limitations as a leader and the way in which she's able to go, you know, nope, that's not what I'm good at. And I'm going to um, delegate this to somebody else and that she's really good at casting, <laughs> um, you know, what she calls her, you know, when she was doing her project with the flotillas, that she was not the admiral, you know, she was not the person in charge in those situations where fast decisions had to be made. She's better at getting people on board and then she needs to step back and let somebody else, you know, take the lead in other ways. It's a little bit like a director and a stage manager, you know, you think about that. Um, I also thought the other thing that was really clear is that she understands the way in which her comfort with her own vulnerability and her comfort with her own sense of being able to say, this is not working, is actually a huge strength, not only for her as a leader, but also for projects. You know, the project in Pennsylvania, where she began to realize, you know, this is a project where if I'm not here full time, it's really causing issues for other people and it's affecting the project. And she was brave enough to say, I need to step back. Um, Yeah. Ideally, you do that at the beginning of before you take a project on, you know, you examine a project and say, is this a project where I'll be a success? Is this a job where I'll be a success, where my skills are well matched? But sometimes if you're in the middle of a project, it can be about hiring somebody else to come in, or it can be really realizing, you know what, I need to move on. And that's that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and And depending on how you do it, you know, if you don't create a lot of negativity in stepping back, you can actually... Um, not lose anything in your own career to just begin to move forward in another direction. And actually Um, build more trust in your followers because they know you're not BSing. Right, exactly. That you won't just take any job, right? That you won't Mm -hmm. just do anything. I've seen a lot of people fail because they they take on a job that they're not well suited for. You know, that's the Peter principle, right? The thing that I think maybe most struck me and that I think might be at the essence of her leadership is kind of what she calls her shyness, which I think, and this is an intuition of mine, but I've known some very shy people um, who turn out to be extremely successful. And one thing that I sensed about her was that, you know, she came from a family with a lot of trauma and a lot of difficulty. And that shyness that she calls shyness might actually have been kind of a space that she created for herself, like a space in which she's reserved, right? But where she might be keeping all of her thoughts and her opinions to herself and also to some degree building up some inner strength, some sense of agency, some sense of separateness, and that that deep pain that combined with kind of this pain is really a deep motivator for what she's doing. That now that she's an adult, now that she's safe, she can step beyond that space that she kept for herself and bring this desire to heal with her. You know, she's healing herself as a leader, as she's engaging with other people. 
those kinds of motivations are at the core of most great leaders. And I think that in her case, it's really clear that that that's a well to which she can always go. Um, that that's that's a source of inspiration for her, and that's a source of of what she wants to mirror out in the real world. And I think I think that's often um, knowing that and being aware of that can really um, help you have vision, you know, have drive, have clarity about where you're going in your life. Well, wow, that's a really great insight. Well, it was a wonderful experience talking to her. As I said, there's a longer version of this interview on our website at uncsa.edu slash artist as leader. We'd love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook at the Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your thoughts, especially which artist leaders you'd love us to feature. I produce this podcast. The theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Corey Madden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.